Hello, and welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a special episode this week. It is a recording of our talk with Eugene Lim. Um, this is part of the book club that we do from time to time on the show's Discord channel, which you can subscribe to if you sign up for our Substack at goodbye.substack.com. Um, I've been interested in Eugene's work for years and years now. He's an experimental fiction writer who's written... Um, really a series of great works i think uh that i don't know how else to describe it except saying that it's i think it's great and um he this in some ways is a very personal book that he wrote and um i think that the conversation that followed with uh both people who are part of our discord community but also me and tammy was in its way like personal and interesting if you're interested in all about writing if you're interested in about a writerly life if you're interested at all about how to express different things that are very core to the human experience through a variety of different ways you know um i don't know i think you'll really enjoy this talk uh, eugene's one of my you know one of the people i admire the most in in this media industry or writing industry and um i hope that uh you i confident that all of you will feel the same way when you get done with this episode okay uh with further ado here's eugene Okay, Eugene, welcome. Um, you know, we were talking today about writing. We're going to talk about your book, uh, Search History, which came out in October. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Um, Eugene and I met, oh, I don't know. How many years ago did we meet? I don't know. You were kind enough. We, uh, I work at a high school, and uh, we were looking for, uh, we had uh, like a conference, and we were, or maybe we were just asking you to come visit the Kind of Asian American Affinity Club, and right. Jay was kind enough to come twice. Uh, and I remember you were—I think it was during the uh, the Oklahoma teacher strike, maybe because you were flying around the country and you came right after. Uh, that or something. That's right. That's right. So it was whenever that year was. The first—that was the first time. The second time I came, I had had this huge fight over text with my friend, and we had decided to stop being friends. And that's when I walked in the front door. And I was like, what a traumatic day, you know? <laughs> and I was like, okay, get yourself together, you know? You don't have to be friends with him anymore anyway. But um, yeah, that's, this is a really, um, I'm excited about this. I mean, we've wanted to have you on for a long time. And this is a type of book club thing that we do quite often. Um, and your book has been requested a lot, you know? So you have a very captive audience here of people who are still coming in. Um, but the, you know, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, like where you grew up, uh, you know, what had what you do and, you know, sort of your your path through things to this date? Good question. Um, I, uh, parents are from Korea. I grew up in Ohio, uh, uh, been in New York for a long time. I moved here to go into publishing and then I got a job in publishing and realized I hated publishing and uh, but still wanted to work with books. So became, after a while, became a librarian. So I've been a high school librarian for almost 20 years. Um, at uh, I was, For a little while, I, I also taught high school, but I've been a, a librarian at this high school for, for 20 years. And in that time, I think it's a good job for a writer, librarians. I always tell people, gym teacher and school librarian, those are good because there's not much grading going on. Right. And... Uh, I run a small press um, and I write and the small press publishes experimental fiction. And that's kind of the, the, the kind of writing I like. Um, and uh, that's the rough sketch. 
Why'd you, what, what'd you hate about the publishing industry? Were, were you like an editor or something? No, I was, this was right out of college and I was like, uh, like a peon in the contracts and publishing department, uh, contracts and permissions department at FSG. And uh, I remember just look, and they gave me, this was, this, I'm, uh, I was born in 74. So I was, uh, this was in 96 or seven. And uh, they, the pay was not good now. The pay good, the pay was not good then. And uh, it was just, it was a real, um, soul-sucking kind of experience the, I was at a I didn't even have a computer I had a typewriter and uh, <laughs> so, and, yeah, and I would go like, into the like Bartleby or something <laughs> yeah I would go into the filing room and look up the uh, I would have to look up the contracts for uh, and there were people writers that I admire and I would look and see how little they made oh, no. and I would and I would just get depressed yeah publishing I feel like book publishing is the worst place for aspiring young writers to work in you know I guess Toni Morrison did okay you know but like outside of that it's hard like it's it's you are your face is sort of shoved in the business of it all the time and then you sort of get this understanding of how difficult it is and then you can't help but kind of you know take in like things that you feel like you I don't know if this happened to you but you know like this was my experience you take in things that you feel like you're supposed to be doing and given what you do, you know, I imagine that that would be doubly tough. Although I, I don't know, at the time, did you know that you wanted to write experimental fiction? I think so. But I, I remember, you know, it was, it was, this was FSG and they, you know, they were a right. high quality list. And uh, I remember, you know, there was a firm wall between contracts and permissions and editorial. But I remember working up the courage to ask the, this, this, uh, I think she was an assistant uh, to lunch, uh, just to, just to pick her you know, brain about what that side of life was like. And she didn't seem to have read, be able to have time reading because she was always slogging through manuscripts. And um, right. it, it is, it, I think it's tough to actually be a, be a reader and be interested uh, in a wide uh, range of things because you're constantly having to, to read what you have to read. Right, which is, you know, half of which is like pretty bad. And then you More have to imagine half, like yeah. a life for it, right? Which is difficult too, which really has nothing to do with the book itself. Sometimes it's uh, difficult. Right. So like what I, a lot of my early questions are about experimental fiction. You know, it's something that I certainly thought a lot about when I was younger, you know, and um, I had people that I admired, I'm sure similar to you, right? Like Bartleme or, you know, like, I don't know, like even something like Pale Fire, right? You read that and you're like, well, what if I could do something like that? Like, well, what, what sort of got you on this track to write books like this? Um, I think the, one of the main turning points was in college, I went to Stanford and there was a guy named, there named Gilbert Sorrentino, who's oh, wow. I think writing, okay. yeah. I don't think his writing might, uh, be, uh, revisited anytime soon, but for, for a lot of people, because he's, he was, he's kind of a, um, a little belligerent, <laughs> definitely pretty sexist so he'll be hard to rehabilitate i hadn't even thought about that yeah he's definitely canceled like so yeah. uh what, what you you like read the fiend or something like that and you're right I, that's i think uh, that's the one i read in graduate school is read the fiend and i was it's you know a, i was pretty blown away and then but i you know this was like 2003 so i don't think i my cancel radar had been <laughs> no, he, he was he was he was very much like a man of his era um right. 
and he but he had this class he had this class he had a few classes but the first one i took was american fiction post 1965 or 50s maybe and it was basically his friends and right. he taught his friends and they were i was blown away there there was a lot of that was my introduction to experimental fiction it was very different from what i was getting in a lot of the others uh, these other classes and um it was just a different way to tell a story um it was it was self-conscious, but it was also natural. And it seemed like art, you know, it was so, so, uh, so that started off. Who, who are his friends? Like, like Marcus Shard or something like that? No, there was Harry Matthews, David okay. Markson. Um, uh, we, uh, we read other people too. We read uh, Brodigan. Uh, uh-huh. We read um, uh, Kathy Acker. Uh, he, he was friends with Robert Creeley, who's a poet, better known as a poet, but I, I love his fiction, actually, and um, uh, there were let's see, there there are people that you had you wouldn't you probably wouldn't hear that right. know of a guy named Edward Dahlberg was was fantastic. A guy named Coleman Dowell was fantastic. Um, so, uh, but they were they were just different. They were different. You hadn't heard of these writers, and then you read them and go, "Why haven't I heard of these writers? These are terrific." Right. So, yeah. Well, that started me off. I, yeah, that's uh, and then you stuck with it, right? Like, I feel like there's like <laughs> an arc that a lot of people do where they do this, you know, and then they and then they realize how hard it is, you know. Like, I, I, I don't know, a lot of the questions I have are like craft based. So, if you don't want to talk about it, I'm sorry. I love um, craft based, but, but also, go ahead. Yeah, it's you know, like, what, what is the you know, like, how, how do you go about doing something like this, you know, like I always wonder about the self-conscious element to it because when I was trying this type of stuff, my stuff is terrible, I'll just say, you know, it's like the dumbest stuff that you can, and it's so derivative, right? So you can imagine, right? Like 23 year old MFA student reads like Bartleme for the first time, mind is blown and it's like starts writing, you know, like, is there like some sort of differentiation that you try and do? Like, do you come up with the concept of it first? Because like the way that this is written, right? Like there are parts of it that read like memoir, right? There are parts of it that read like people riffing on identity, right? The type of thing that you might find in like, oh, I don't know, like uh, any number of books, like like Beckett or something like that, where there's like these sort of paragraphs that are that are almost objects, right? Like I think that a lot of the, those are some of the parts that I really gravitated towards in the book where it's like these conversations that are written in this, you know, like sort of Beckett type of way. Like um, what's the, what's process? Like, how do you sort of go about thinking about it and, and structuring all this out? Structure is a tough question. Um, but I think, I think the 23 year old me was probably not that different from you. And I think that, uh, you learn as you go along what, you know, what, what, uh, what you like and what, uh, I think in the beginning you get, um, enamored or enthralled by a certain kind of cleverness and, uh, and you get excited by the pyrotechnics, but it's not necessarily the sustaining part of, of what writing can be. And I think, you know, as you age or as you, you can gain some wisdom where it's not just about the fireworks, but kind of, but, you know, a little bit about more about the depth of the music or the, the soul of the music. Anyway, um, in terms of structure, I think, um, over the course of the past couple of books, I've created a, a monologue structure where a character comes on stage 
speaks a long story and fades out another person comes in. And, and then you stitch all those monologues together. And I think that is good for a person who has perhaps like you and I have uh, short attention spans and want to move things along both as a reader and a writer. Um, and it also gives you like, uh, you come to material and you go, how do I want to talk about this in what form? And then kind of the, the content and the form, you wrestle with it and you, and then you find the form that, you know, that, that works with that particular thing. And it, there's no formula to it, but I think that's roughly what, uh, how you start off anyway. Right. Is it like you, you know, I don't know. I remember when I was in, some George Saunders came in and he was like, well, all my stories I think of as Neil Young songs, you know, and um, they kind of rattle along. And at some point I'm like, okay, it's done. You know, but I don't really know when it's done or not then, you know, this was not the modern George Saunders. This was like civil war land and bad decline. And oh, what's the name of the other one? Anyway, the, you know, these are the, when he was making these very densely constructed or what felt like densely constructed short stories like how, how do you like how do you sort of figure out when it's done when something is as complex as as what you're doing because you know i was reading very trying to read as closely as possible and it's like well you know there's like sort of all these layers running through of it right and you i almost had to go back and look you know and be like okay so this goes to here this goes to here obviously the image on the cover is indicative of that right like it and, and even the title like this sort of idea of things in this web, like how, how do you how do you sort of get about that? <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's not an easy question to answer, but um, I think I realize why artists will do you know will go through periods where they'll do things repeatedly, 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 and even after a while you go well, do something different. Um, it's because they figured something out, and it's it's a huge thing when you figure out when you unlock one form, one right. shape, and then you want to make it better, and, and so. A few books ago, I found that monologue structure. And what that monologue structure I think does is it creates these little frames where you can, um, you know, basically the shape, but you can, when you come to the writing desk every day, you get to, um, you get to improvise, you get to be extemporaneous and that keeps it fresh for you. So I think that's, that's useful. Um, how do you know when it's done? That's actually pretty tricky. And I think um, for the last, for every novel, basically, since they're, since they're kind of different uh, and experimental or uh, they're not a common form, uh, they're not a traditional form, it takes a while to go, is it enough? Will people recognize it as a novel? Will it, is it balanced? Does it have a beginning, middle and end? Does it just drop off into nothingness? Or is it, you know, so, and then after a while, you, after you do it two, three times, then at least you can say, well, it looks roughly like that last one and it has that kind of weight and shape uh, and it seems to have that consistency. So I think it's a novel or I think it's at least as much of a novel as the last one I made. So, okay. so oh. that kind of helps you, for, helps, it helps you get a sense of a shape or a sense of form or finishedness after you have done a few. Do you, like uh, I, people have been trying to figure out how to deal, you know, how to write like the internet since you know, the internet was created, right? Like, I mean, think about, there's like hyperlink fiction in like 1994, right? Or 1995. Yeah, we didn't really go the hyperlink way. 
yeah. And this, <laughs> this, this book, I think in some ways, and I think in some ways not, right? Like is, I think trying to replicate some form of uh, way in which the brain moves when, when, you know, our modern brain moves, right? And you've, you have links in there, right? Which I, I don't know, I read everything on all the, I, this is horrible, but I read all my books on my phone, you know, on the Kindle So, you know, I actually clicked on the links, they, they work, you know, they go to things like I right. watched Pat Morita's uh, YouTube video and stuff like that, right? Like, so there's this sort of going out of the book for this, right? Um, I don't know, how do you think about that? Cause there was something that I remember when I was in graduate school and like, uh, you know, Nathan Englander was say, said like, a book is an object and it should not interact in, uh, with the outside world. I want it, you know, I want my books to be objects that are totally inert, right? That, that um, the story in itself has its own sort of atmosphere and that nothing should be captured outside of it. I don't know, like how, how did you sort of go about this? T tell me about your process through it. Tell me, and also tell me if my reading of your, of like how you wanted this book to move is totally wrong. <laughs> it's is, not wrong. Yeah. It's not wrong. I think that, uh, the, I think I could be polemical too. If, you know, I think that right. that's a, that's a stance. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know how wedded he felt to it. I don't know how wedded I am going to feel to what I'm about to say, but um, one thing is it's a lot easier to put references or things in a book because people can look them up relatively quickly, right? You don't have to put footnotes everywhere. You don't have to um, explain everything. You can put the, the epigraphs at the beginning of chapters. You don't have to, um, it doesn't have to be from a canonical text or even, right. you know, it can, and people can look those up. So that the references, the idea of references um, is something that is easily, not only is it easily done, but you kind of expect if you throw something in there that people will look it up or people, you know, it's, it's possible for people to look it up. And if they do, it adds to the experience. If it doesn't, if they don't, I think they can still get through the text, but so that helps. Um, I think that the reason that the monologue structure works a little bit is because we go through so many different narratives via the internet and via our lives, via this, the streaming of information through us all the time. So we're actually have been trained to jump from story to story to story, not to finish them necessarily, but just move with relative ease. And that's why I think, even though it's so disparate and disjunctive, it's it's entirely, I mean, it doesn't throw people as much as maybe it, it might've in the past to jump from world to world to world to world. Yeah, that's true. Um, and a lot of these stories don't have ends either, the ones that we look at, right? Um, I don't know. I remember I watched this guy, Korean guy walking across the country. His father had just died. He's like walking across the country with a lacrosse stick. It was captivating. I mean, he was just like this bro, you know, and he had been adopted. And um, I think he was dealing with some of that, right? Like transracial adoption. So his white father just died. And um, yeah. And then he reached the end. And then, you know, like, uh, but that was like the only thing I can remember having like a beginning and end to it, right? Like everything else is just kind of suspended and, and uh, doesn't have like a beginning or an end. Um, I don't know, but uh, I don't know. This does seem to have an, like this. I think that your book does have like a full narrative in it, right? Like, um, and that it's not, it's not sort of one of these things that 
you know, that I think a lot of people who are trying to emulate the internet do where they just sort of put these fragments in, right? And they, the whole point is like the fragment, right? And that, that it's almost like a structural and formal statement more than anything else. Like, I don't think that this is that, right? Like there's, there's like a whole emotional intellectual life in this um, that, that I, I don't know, that's the part that I really was moved part by. Of it, part of it is um, the pleasures of a reader your experience as a reader and what you know um, you like, what you know gives you fulfillment or, or um, pleasure. And uh, that if you get too fragmentary or if, you, if, you, if you're doing things that, you, that, uh, that are just for cleverness sake, uh, they're not that, they're not that uh, interesting for others. Um, but I think, so then you have to realize, oh, what a story is and uh, you know, wh why people like stories, why people like narrative. Once you know why people like a story or why people like narrative, then you can chop it up and you know where to break it up. You know? If you don't know, then you're just, then you're just breaking, up a, breaking up things and creating fragments that you don't know the value of and you don't right. know, you know. So that, oh. that part is important. Yeah, I mean, cause okay, so the question I have is just like, how you deal with the iPod for, you know, we'll get into other things. These are just, and these are like the, I, I feel like this is, most, um, this is what I'm curious about. So I'm just going to ask, you know, how do you deal with the outside world? Right. Because um, you have in some ways these sort of surreal, um, these surreal scenes, right? Like you have a man chasing a dog, for example, right? Um, he thinks the dog is his deceased friend, right? Um, you have people who are almost in a superhero uh, type of action movie type of setting, right? And then you have references like Hannah Gadsby, right? Like where there's this intrusion of like a very modern world, right? Um, and a very specific modern world, right? Um, and I don't know, in my own writing, I would always try and think about that. It's just like, okay, how do you keep this consistent, right? Like, what are the intrusions? What are not the intrusions? What are things that are going to bump people right out of whatever world I'm creating? And in this book, they seem intentional, you know, like it seems like every time I hear about Bobby Lee, for example, or we can talk about Bobby Lee in a little bit, but like we hear about Bobby Lee or we hear these, you know, like these conversations that feel so very, very familiar, right? Like there's this conversation about like, like the conversation about Bobby Lee, for example, right? It's a conversation that everyone's had about Bobby Lee, right? Um, I'm a huge Bobby Lee defender. And I also like the, the, his podcast, Tiger Belly, especially when he's like, has his friends on who are like racist, you know? And then he like, you know, like they do this whole racist, I don't know. I enjoyed, I find it funny, but I enjoy Bobby. <laughs> I enjoy Bobby Lee too. And okay, the kids, good. the kids, the, the high school kids were the ones that taught me about Bobby Lee. So. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I, I didn't learn about him. Independently. Oh, man, I love Bobby Lee. I like to bet Bobby Lee for, like, I, I get very mad with people. Um, you know, I actually think everyone's okay with Bobby Lee at this point, but. Um, I think but, the comedian does live in this weird place. You know, right. it's not, I mean, anyways, we, I don't know how much you want no, to talk about. No, go ahead. Bobby. Yeah. Let's, let's get in. Yeah. The, what about the comedian? Uh, okay, there's one and two. The, the idea of the, uh, the intrusion of the world, I right. think one, one thing about that is, um, you know, my books or the past few books have each chapter is almost a different world. Right. So you can get away with um, one world having a different, different physics or different kind of relationship to reality. Than another. And I think that helps. Uh, once that's established, it helps you um, balance things out. Comedians, I mean, I think I say in the book, 
uh, a few things, I mean, but uh, they're constantly, I mean, the reason why I think that there's such a pushback as a comedian uh, against cancel culture or against kind of, because they are, they make their living, you know, in that they make their living as free speech advocates. They make their living as kind of um, uh, telling, when we laugh, when someone makes a joke, a lot of it is because they're saying a submerged truth that we didn't realize was true. Um, uh, and sometimes they do it, sometimes they, uh, what they're releasing or what they're allowing us to see is a racist belief or, or some like shitty belief that we have that we didn't realize that we have and that we all of a sudden we, we get to have in this moment. And then that might not be the best use of the comedian, but sometimes the comedian says something, um, something that's true and we didn't realize it, and it's it's useful. But there's a there's a weird truth aspect, or a weird weird like bringing to the surface of that which we didn't know that we were thinking. So um, so it's a pretty risky job. And then if you're an Asian American comedian or if you're a comedian of color, and your audience is white, then you have to then you have to make all this huge dance uh, between uh, respectability, getting your laughs, you know, uh, yourself and the audience. It's it's. So the comedians are working in a, this commercial uh, uh, medium where they have to get a joke every whatever minutes, and they're also um, they're also largely speaking to a white audience. Yeah. So it's a tough gig for an artist, especially for an Asian American artist. So, and all those artists that are mentioned in that chapter, from Bobby Lee all the way back to uh, Pat Morita, uh, they had to negotiate that. Yeah, it's a, it feels like a, and and you know most of it is in your own head, right? Like these parameters that you make. You know, obviously Dave Chappelle is the most famous one, where he just decided at some point he couldn't tolerate the way that somebody was laughing, and you know it sort of spun out because of it, because it had crossed some threshold that was in his head. It's interesting how much of it is internal. Like uh, I had a friend at college who you know became a pretty well-known comedian at this point, um, but he used to tell these jokes in college and they were, he would speak, he's Indian and he would speak in, or Indian American, he'd speak in this, you know, Indian accent and he would do jokes. And then he moved to Seattle and became like very, very political. And then he decided that every joke he had told in college was like a betrayal of himself. And then he made the short movie where he plays this like horrible hat comedian that's telling all these racist jokes, you know, of like, you know, uh, and then all the jokes that he told were the jokes that he used to tell in college. And so it was like, it was amazing. It was like this form of like him killing his old self, you know, and now he doesn't do any of that stuff. And then he made like a movie about a poo, like, right. And then like, you know, and then sometimes you're like, okay, like, you know, um, I get it, you know, but like, I thought your jokes in college were funny and, um, and I'm not racist against you. But then I totally understood because we're at a place with all white people, you know, where, where it would really, it would really get in his head. It was interesting. It's like, um, I've, I've, I really love that chapter because, you know, I think, I feel like you aptly described all of this through, through structure and through, and through the actual arguments within the prose. Um, okay. Let me, let me ask you about this, this, what, you know, the identity, the questions about identity are sort of laced throughout this. So I'm going to read part of the book, which is, Identity is constructed and it's constructed both by the individual and by society, both within and without race and class are, but two aspects of it. Your name is another. 
your physical dimensions another, but despite being a construct and one that is dependent on a vast and intricately interrelated web of causes and therefore without a fundamental abiding nature, it is an important construction in that most organize their lives around it, right? Um, I think that that is a, you know, I think that's great. Like, but how, how do you want people to read these things, right? Because I imagine that what you don't want people to read is that this is your thoughts on it, right? Like that you are sort of writing a polemic within this book. Um, like, how, how do you want people to sort of think about these conversations that you're having about identity within between these characters? Um, I don't know exactly. I, <laughs> I think that uh, th there's, they're having discussions about identity and race. I don't want them to be um, uh, spouting foolish opinions, but I want them to be spouting, you know, uh, def mo largely thought out opinions that may contradict sometimes. Um, and it just kind of, you can constellate, uh, constellate kind of a, a worldview uh, that is sometimes co self-contradictory or sometimes internally contradictory. I think that's okay. Um, but so in that sense, it's, it's just like in my previous, my previous novel was about kind of the culture of protests and protest movements. Um, I think there are, I think it tries to present a few different ways to think about identity, just like that book thought about different ways to think about protests. Um, so it might be a cop-out, but I think it's multivalent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not a cop-out. I mean, you know, cop-out would just be like, this is everything I think and you better not disagree with me or something like that, right? I mean, I think that forcing the reader to think through this without, you know, I think a good reader will not place themselves and be like, okay, this is what Eugene is saying to me, right? Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like you sort of, I don't know, I enjoyed that part too. Um, so, though I don't have that many problems with that particular section that you, you wrote. Right, right, you read. right. Um, what, what sort of the, this is a bit of a strange question, but um, you know, like what, why it's, you know, it's uh, you were writing about things that generally are contained within memoir, personal essay and polemic, right? In this thing, like this, these questions of Asian identity, right? Like they've found like a literary form at this point, right? And, um, some of it is comedy, right? Like Margaret Cho, for example, or something like that, or Bobby. And then, so, but mostly it's sort of this sort of straightforward confessional thing, right? Like, I don't know, I do it, right? Like, um, and that a lot of people do it. Um, yeah, like, you know, is it, what, what, how do you sort of get these sorts of thoughts out within this frame, right? Within this frame of experimental fiction, right? Like, because I, that's sort of the innovation that I see in this book, right? Like it is stuff that, is familiar in a way, but it is placed within this frame that actually makes me look at it completely differently. Is that intentional or you, or, you know, like, like why, why write it in this form and not like, just be like, here are all my thoughts on identity. And, you know, this is what happened. To, this is what my mother told me about her life in Korea, which would be, you know, I don't know, maybe bestseller or something like that, or, you know, like the type of stuff that people on Twitter are like, oh my God, you know, this is the most, right. Like this is this, this, it, I feel like, you know, if, if, um, if, like, I don't think that it is obscuring anything, or I don't think it's obfuscating it, but it certainly is turning it, right? Like, um, you know, like, what, what, what is the thought process behind that? But fundamentally, I think you're asking, why do, why write non-traditionally? 
why right. write in yes. this weird why write in a weird way when you could write straightforwardly and i think i think the the reverse is usually for me true why write traditionally when you could write you know singularly or write your own way um <clears throat> When you, the traditional format, like if I wrote about my mother, I think you would know what's coming. You know, I think you would know the story. You might not know the details. You might not, you, you know, you might not have had that particular empathy for me. Uh, and then you would have, after you have read such a story, you might've had some uh, sympathy or empathy from what I've been through, what my mother had gone through. But um, in the format, of the I remember chapter, which is I remember my mother remembers. Um, it's, it's not, it, it's, it does a lot of things. It's talking about the relationship of me to my mother uh, and it's talking about her life in a fairly short amount of time with, and it's a pointillistic structure. It's not like uh, the, the I remember, which is based on this Joe Brainerd kind of famous um, uh, list book or list poem where he just with every entry of every paragraph begins with the words I remember um, and it's a beautiful kind of uh, very simple used by write, creative writing teachers everywhere including uh, elementary school teachers yeah. um, to generate story and you don't generate once upon a time and then there is uh, conflict and then denouement you, you get little bits of um, of a person's ideation. And, and if, if you get little bits of a person's personal history, then after a certain amount of time, and if you're a decent pointillist, uh, you, get, um, you do get a portrait, but the portrait is, is not the same as if you told the story where, where you know, in 1974. Right, right. You know? right. Um, and I think, so the format, the form creates a different experience. Um, it creates a different understanding via language of the world or a different understanding of language too. Right. So well, I, and also it's like much more, like, I don't know. I found it that it was much more, um, I don't know. Cause I, I tried to, I had a similar thing where I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to impose any sort of, you don't have to tell me, but you know, I had this moment where my mother told me about all this stuff from the war right and childhood in korea which had all been withheld from me growing up right um which is you know how korean parents are and so um my not, to, yes. not to be race <laughs> essentialist here but you know that's just how korean american parents are I mean, like especially if our age eugene right like we're older so um and i was thinking about it when i was reading that chapter and i was like oh this is actually much more this is much more true to that experience of listening to it because it is delivered in impressions almost, right? And then I tried to create a narrative around it, right? I did start like 1956, blah, 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 right? But like, you know, I try and cut, cut around it a little bit. In the end, there's just a chunk narrative, right? And I don't even know if that narrative is true because I'll base my mom, you know, my mom makes shit up all the time, you know, <laughs> based on like what her sister said. Her sisters make stuff up all the time, right? And a lot of the stuff contradicts. But then like where the way that you did it, right, which is I remember my mother remembering, right, it's actually, you know, I don't know. I'm just giving the you a compliment is, here. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> thank you, Jay. The truth is, I have not really until this book uh, written um, in that confessional mode exactly. Right. And uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. I think fundamentally the book is about grief and loss and I lost a friend. But 
around that same time, I took a walk, like literally as it says in the book, but my mom opened up in a way uh, she hadn't before and she's aging and she, um, and I think there's cognitive change in my, uh, in my mother. And uh, I was glad to get that story at that time. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it, but I knew that it wasn't, it, wa it wasn't a, um, it was an experience that I had had before and I didn't think that I would have many more of them. And I, um, and so I thought about it and I thought, and, and so I, I thought about how to write it. And that was the, I couldn't write it in a straightforward way. I don't think I could have written it in a straightforward way because I think because I would have felt like I was lying or I would have felt like it was not true to it. And yeah, so I felt that so, way too. So you have yeah. to find a form where you're not, where you don't feel that way. Cause I was just like, what am I doing here? I'm reading like, I'm like cross-referencing with like three books that are bullshit, you know, to make sure the facts are right. And then, um, and then I'm sort of filling stuff in and I'm like, well, this is like, you know, like this doesn't capture the emotional experience, right? Like I had this moment where I was in Korea with my uh, grandmother and she's like 96 at the time or something. She's dead now, but you know, it was right before she died. And it was like a fire hose, you know, like where all this stuff that had been pent up about the war is just tumbling out in Korean, you know? And so, um, and yeah, I thought about that. I was just like, well, how do you capture that? Right. Like, how do you, do you just write it all down and do you then like re represent it as best as you can, but then it just becomes sort of like a very traditional book that is like a lot of other books or a lot of narratives that are like other narratives and you miss the delivery part of it, right? Like you, you miss the emotional delivery part of it, but, um, Anyway, again, a compliment. I don't think you missed that part. I think it's very hard, though. I don't know. That must have been a difficult chapter to write, right? Like every five words, you like are just like, oh my god, am I being corny or not? <laughs> At least that would be in my head. <laughs> well, you do worry about being, uh, you know, being sentimental or being right. corny or, be but on the other hand, you—that's the risk. Uh, that's right. the emotional risk, and uh, also, like there are people that do the that write beautifully in a traditional way or write very well and straightforwardly uh without gimmicks and i always want to write a novel straightforwardly without gimmicks i don't think that's true do you actually you do i often think i would like to write a long lyrical novel <laughs> you know where, where where people understand my dad and my mom can they can read it and they go <laughs> they can go i Okay, my dad always. Anyways, I forget what my my dad's writerly advice is is probably not the point. But um, but I would like, I think that's to get to what I think you've been asking is like why do you write in this way as opposed to another way? I think that's a that's the way that I have come to wrestle with form because I think it's it's more honest or more interesting. One of those two. Um, and at this point, it would be hard to do it otherwise. Yeah, I, when that one you really, at that part you really, I feel like you really succeeded. I felt like a great amount of jealousy reading it. Cause you know, like I was like, oh, this is similar to this chapter I'd written in my book. And I was like, this is much better. You know, like, um, it's, it's like, it, it's, uh, it just felt more, uh, I don't know, it felt more real in a way, in the way that you're describing, right? Like, cause it, you don't see the hand of the writer, right? Like um, you do in a way, but it's not like a constructed narrative that I'm trying to like 
take you from point A to point B. Like you don't have to take people from point A to point B there. It's, it's just a lot different. Um, okay. Other thing that I want to talk about is like, and this is the last formal thing I'll ask, and then we can actually open up to other people's questions, you know, because I, I'm sorry, like, I, I feel like all my questions are basically the same question, which you've posted, picked up on this one is not, um, there's, you are in this book, you know, and yet it is in tiny portions, right? Like there's like one sentence where like seventh graders are reading in the library or something like that. I know you're a librarian at school with seventh graders. <laughs> it's like, oh, there he is, you know? And then this, this, this thing with the mother, right? And then even like the sort of way in which you identify the characters, it's very amorphous, right? Like, um, you know, like sometimes I like the way that you, I can sort of tell them is like if they're Korean or not, right? But then even then sometimes it's like, okay, you know, like um, there's this sort of, moving in and out of stuff right how'd you handle that right like like what like where are the points where like you just break through and is that intentional right because for me it's like the experience of reading this book part of the reason why i enjoyed it was just because you know you do have these jolts right um and um the jolts are actually emotional right like you have like a you, you feel a certain emotion which i found very interesting because i you know like Technically, I should not feel emotional, even though I know you, we've only met once, you know, like I shouldn't feel emotional where I'm just like, oh, this person is here. And actually here is the center of the grief that all the book is radiating around, right? Is this, is this like one quick moment where you see the actual author in the li at his job, you know, almost trying to arrange all this stuff around him, right? Um, I don't know, like, where is like, what, what's the thought process behind like, behind that? Like, how do you? How do you sort of write yourself in and out? Yep. I think there's two things. One is there are, there are, and I think this is the, for the first time, but maybe not for the last, there are very particular chapters called autobiographical interludes right. where I'm upfront about the autobiography. Um, but because this was such a personal book, um, I've said this before, but I thought that a lot of books, a lot of novelists, a lot of novels are written um, where there is this kind of emotional engine, which is secret, which is, you know, I'm really writing about my father. I'm really writing about this um, trauma that happened to me personally, but I'm going to disguise it and transform it into a fiction, into a novel. Um, this is about grief, but I thought if I can give you the, um, if I can give you the secret engine up front, then you can see how it works and, and how it is moving through the fantastical or the you know, the more uh, fictional parts. You can see the relationship between the two. So I thought in that sense, I did that, I think for the first uh, explicit time in this one, I thought that was, um, so, and that's where you might uh, recognize or, or you, you see me, you know, more transparently. The other thing to, in terms of like moving in and out, I, I have, uh, I think this format, allows a different understanding of the concept of character. You'll go, to, when you go, when you read or you go to an MFA, there's, there's kind of an ideology about character or there's an ideology that runs through traditional fiction about character. And it's, after you start thinking about it, I think it becomes, um, you recognize it as a technology that is common, but, and is, um, uh, is everywhere used, but is not the only way to move, to have these, uh, this idea of personhood in fiction. Uh, Harry Matthews, I actually, 
don't know if he really said this, but I think of this as a quote from a guy named Harry Matthews, an experimental fiction writer, where he said, all you need for a character is a, a name and a haircut or a name and a hair color. Um, you just need a few tags, if you want to think about it in, from a metadata perspective. You just need a few tags, and then the reader will know, oh, that is that concept of personhood, you know, throughout right. the book. And you can, you know, if anyone has, if you've ever written a novel, you realize, or, you know, a long story, you, you know what, I think that person should be, I, I think I'm going to change that person's gender or name. And you do a find and replace, right? And it works. It's a little, or it alters it in a particular way. Um, but you can do that. You can change those tags um, and the personhood still comes through. So once you realize that, you realize, oh, you can play with um, how this notion of a character or how that notion of a personhood um, operates, how that technology of character operates in a fiction. And so then you can go in and out and people are going, in, all the re in several reviews for search history, good reviews that I actually I'm glad that I got and I thought were insightful. They they get the characters' names wrong. In, in big, you know, in large publications, this happens. And I don't mind because it's pretty complicated. There are more, <laughs> there's more than one unnamed narrator in the book. Right, so right, I, right. I, underst I understand why they do that. But I also think it doesn't really matter. You can go through the book, you can read, you get a sense of who people are, you get a sense of these, these different um, viewpoints clashing or coming into... And you don't really need to know, oh, this one was this one, and this one was this one. It's okay. And you, you can do that, but you can right. also kind of work through it with this, this, this kind of undefined or, or uh, deconstructed idea of character. Um, yeah, I, had, um, I know character names, I think I would have had a hard time too, you know? But I would, you know, I'd have looked it up and made sure before it was published that it was right. <laughs> but, but you're right. Like, I think I've always just thought that was, I, just, I thought that was intentional. Like we were supposed to slip between these things. Um, last question. Yeah. This is the most annoying one. You know, um, I don't know. Like, do you, do you, do you, do you see, I, do you see yourself? How do you think about like Asian writer and you, you know, like, do you feel What's the first part? Like, a, how do you feel about like sort of Asian being like an Asian writer? Like, is this something you think about? Yeah. You know, like, or do you think like, all right, I'm, I'm an Asian writer, and you know, I, I have some responsibility to be Asian. You know. Um, oh, I see. Well, yeah. Or to write it, to write in a way that's like Asian e. Um, I think that the writer. The hyphenated writer, the writer of color, has confronts that burden by necessity, yeah. the burden of representation by necessity, and and that's just an additional problem. In fact, the white writer has that problem too, but they don't realize it. It's just you have to you have to deal with how your marked your racially marked body or your how your characters racially marked bodies um, interact with the world. It's an issue. It's a problem to handle or to solve. Um, just like, well, anyways, so I think one has to deal with it. I think how I've dealt with it has changed from book to book to book. And as I've grown older, for sure. And, um, um, but so, and also, um, the world has responded differently, 
has started to respond differently. So that's also interesting. So it's not just me, but um, when I wrote, when I go see the um, the high school kids and they, the, this is the story I, say, I tell them. I, I, first I tell them a Kurt Vonnegut joke, which they don't laugh at, but it's this, the following. True horror is waking up and realizing your high school class, graduating class is running the country. They don't laugh. But well, their high school class might be. <laughs> <laughs> your high school class is also running the country. Yeah, or at least making Hamilton, right? Um, yeah. At some point, yeah. Okay. But what the joke means is like, you know, at some point you get to our age, Jay, or, or you know, you right. get older and uh, people your age are running shit. You know, your cardiologist is your age or, or younger or your governor or your mayor. Or whatever. And what happened to, and why I bring that up is what happened with me is um, I'm a kid of, uh, you know, post 65 immigrants. And when I was a, when I was growing up, if I met someone my age, they would have an accent, not 100%, but almost, almost 100%, they would have an accent. And I would tell that to the high school kids that I, that I um, would meet. And now it's, you know, now, now the generation, a generation uh, or two has um, grown up and they speak they're native speakers. And they're also, they're, my, my cohort or my age group is suddenly, they're the gatekeepers, they're the editors, and they're the, um, you know, they're the, the, the reviewers. My first book, no one, I mean, I self-published my first book. The right. second book, John Yao uh, published. The, the, um, uh, and the third book, which, uh, I think I got an agent who, uh, the agent, all the reviewers, large number of the reviewers were Asian American. And that was a whole change. There's a ch shift, which you probably have all seen in 2017, 2018, uh, where diversity in publishing became um, an issue, became a right. focus. Anyways, so that also has changed things. I don't know if that answers your question, but those are those are, um, yeah, I've been thinking about it. I don't know. It's like, uh, I think that does answer my question. Yeah, it's really just like, it feels very, I don't know. I am only asking, you know, just because of my own head. You know, it's just like, oh, I wonder if Eugene feels more liberated than me, you know? Like, a, uh, I wonder if because of the form that he's chosen, that um, he feels that he doesn't have the same. I don't feel the responsibility. I will just say that, but I do, you know, everyone does, you know, but like, it's not, um, you know, but that's just because everything is so literal that I do, right? Like everything is literal. Like it's just supposed to be meant to, there's no subtext, you know, I don't tell jokes in my actual writing, you know, <laughs> like, so uh, there's no irony, right? It's just like, Hey, I think, oh, you know, like this Harvard is discriminating against Asian people, you know, it's not a fucking joke, you know, it's just like, Hey, can't, you know, like, um, I don't know. I, I'm just wondering if it's like more liberating to sort of think about identity through that sort of lens. But you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. Fiction is very different from nonfiction. You know, that's just straight up true. Like if you get to be, if you get to write fiction, it's a, you get to, you know, it's a, it's a, you're not obligated in the same way. And that's a significant difference. Um, and uh, you're, you're, you're bound to form you're bound to content and truth, sure, but your truth is delivered in a different way. Uh, so, so it it offers you 
freedom of form. But on the other hand, poets are totally free. No one reads, you know, it, your experimental fiction writers, <laughs> I feel a certain freedom because yeah, you know, yeah. irrelevancy gives you a certain amount of freedom. So, so there's that. <laughs> I know it is interesting. I I tried that. Um, you know, in my novel, I tried the you know like this monologue thing that you you know like not in the same construction, but you know I just have people spout off for two pages, and I did feel very liberated because it was like my craziest thoughts, you know, about like the Virginia Tech shooting or something like that, just like pouring out. And then I'd read it. This shit's crazy, but I didn't say it. He said it. You know. <laughs> Uh, but I don't think that that is actually a, like a highly constructed way of doing it. You know, it's because I was a young writer and. Um, it feels very juvenile at this point to me, um, reading it again. Okay, let's open up the, I'm sorry, the, let's open up the, uh, let's open up the chat. If you have a question, um, just raise your hand or something like that, or unmute yourself and, and ask, Tammy, do you want to start? Do you have any questions? Sure. Hey, Eugene, thanks again. Um, I was curious if you could talk about whether you think this is a political book or what kinds of politics you wanted to convey through some of the writing. Like, I, you know, for instance, like it really stuck out to me just when I opened it at the very beginning that Barry V. Desai, the leader of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, is the epigraph. And there are all these different sorts of, you know, kind of political references that are folded in. I think the last, I, I think my last novel was much more, um, it was called uh, Dear Cyborgs and had to do with technology, but had to do with the culture of protest and was much more explicitly uh, political in its focus and, and content. Um, in this one, uh, I don't know, other than in, this, in the ways that we've been talking about um, Asian American artists, it, you know, there are issues in there uh, in terms of AI particularly, um, how it how it is uh, changing changing our world and how we it's changing our world in a way that's fairly insidious. Um, I think that's important um, and it's a little bit in the book. Um, I think it was it's political in the in the, in the sense that it also presents an overwhelmedness in terms of um, a viable politics and kind of despair about that. Um, so I don't know if it's political in kind of a point of view or po polemic, but it is uh, political in, the, um, in its affect or its feeling of confusion and um, not necessarily entirely hopelessness, but um, a moment of uh, quasi paralysis or quasi um, not quite knowing what to do. <laughs> so in that sense, I, it expresses that, which maybe might be a political expression or expression of a relationship to politics. Thanks. Other questions? Okay. You can just unmute yourself as long as you don't yell over each other if anyone has other questions. Or are there ones in the chat? I won't out this person, but I know we have a comedian, a stand-up comedian, and if they would like to have any questions about that. He's a stand-up comedian. Is Bobby Lee in this? No. No, no. I, 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 I know. <laughs> um, 
Hey, uh, I have two questions. Hey, Eugene. Um, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, yeah, it's been so fun. Um, so I read uh, Dear Cyborgs right before reading Search History, and I felt like I read both of them like pretty close and um, uh, like not that long after the other. And so they're like both like quite different books, but I think also there are enough similarities in like the form in terms of the monologues and also a few I don't know if characters or like character names that reappear. So I'm wondering like how you thought about those books in relation to each other. And um, I was also curious just how much, maybe how much of your books are planned or sort of like where they begin, whether it's from that kind of like secret engine that you were talking about or um, yeah, with, with the character or like with a specific monologue. Um, those are my questions. Um. You know the character. It's been it's been interesting. Like what I said before is true that um, that uh, characters were. It was less important to me to build a particular character with a particular psychology and have them grow through this fictional world. But after I had done that in in previous books, I realized um, I could reuse them, and then they slowly kind of built their own. Um, they they like the characters would start to speak. Uh, could be used, could um, seemed useful to bring into these scenes. So they started reappearing and then they started over time collecting particular personalities. So that was interesting. It's like, you know, it's like the formation of a formation of a character. Um, and in terms of like, do I plan it out? I think like right now, while we were starting, I was talking to Jay about uh, kind of this, the, po the post publication era. And there is this kind of time where you have to, you're dealing with the doneness of the last book and you're fishing around for the next. And this has only happened a few times for me, but when you are in that uh, casting around time, it's interesting. You don't have the, you don't have a, I don't, I don't haven't had a plan. You know, I don't have an necessarily a full outline, but at different points, nonetheless, the full shape would come to you. And it's weird for a full shape of a book to come to you because you don't, it, it's hard to describe what that really means because it's not like the outline comes to you, but it's like the feeling and the scope um, come to you. And you just have, a, you have, oh, I think I can, I think I can actualize or realize this vision. And the vision is cloudy and the vision has holes in it, but, but at some point, you know, it starts to cohere. Um, so it's not, so, um, there, I, the, my first book was a little, was had a much more of a, uh, a plan. And I think therefore it's a little bit schematic. Like it's a little bit airless at times. You can get very good at planning. Um, and you plan your whole, you plan all the energy out of it. Um, so it's a balanced thing, I think. And it's also, um, you know, kind of, uh, if you, if you, cast around a lot, then you, well, here's, if you go to the writing table a lot, if you're going to your writing practice a lot, these grooves start to show or you, these, these like habits of concern or these like the gravity of certain topics form. And then after a while you go, okay, I'm going to, these are the themes of the book. So I think that's, that's how that happens for me. Thank you. Sure. Other questions? Hey, um, 
So thank you for, for coming to talk to us. I was um, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about <clears throat> Borges and like what, what you're doing with, with Borges here. Because um, I, I just, today I reread The Garden of Forking Paths and I hadn't read it in several years. I'd forgotten that the, the, the narrator was um, a Chinese man um, or spy. And yeah, so I, I was wondering like what, um, did you insert, you know, the, uh, was this like, you know, it wink and a nod or, or is there something deeper that you're uh, doing to like structure the, the, the book on, um, on his work or, you know, just what's, what's going on here? That, I think that title is a slightly, it's, it's one of the, I'll, I'll admit this, one of the weaker uh, um, uh, gestures because only because I love Borges and I think he's in the book in a lot of different ways. But that particular story I wanted to use because it's like there's a, there's a, there's a line in it where the narrator says something like, I wanted to prove to the Kaiser like a yellow man could uh, something, you know, could, could be proven worthy. And he's doing this, um, A, he's doing a diabolical thing for the, for, um, for the enemy. Um, and I joked somewhere that it was, it was, that it was, it was this weird kind of um, respectability uh, desire. Anyway, the, the, Borges is important in the book because I think um, of his idea of the infinite library, mostly uh, the, his idea. And I used it in, in a previous novel too, but in the idea of, um, of searching, searching, uh, you know, in, in the library of Babel, the, um, the confronting the enormous infinity of information, which we do all the time via the internet and via life uh, and how it's overwhelming to have, and like the idea, like once you have this infinite library, we're good. We, we have everything at our fingertips. And then you realize it just, you just have a lot of problems is what you have. You have a lot of, uh, you have um, uh, a, a density of material that you don't know exactly how to order and how to think about and how to go through. You're overwhelmed. Um, you're, and it's not so, uh, he, he was on it early that we are, um, in this information deluge. So, so, and that because he's a librarian and writer for a lot of reasons, I, I, um, I think of him a lot. Um, but that particular story, I think maybe maps and that particular story title of Borges maps on that particular chapter, not particularly informatively. Uh, so maybe it's just a wink and a nod. Thank you. Sure. Other questions? Can I um, ask a, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. I, um, I just wanted to say hi, Ms. Hi, Lim. I don't know if you remember me. I definitely <laughs> remember, good to see you. <laughs> um, Mr. Lim was my high school librarian uh -huh. and I just wanted to say it's really cool to grow up and find out that like this very like stable figure that was in your life during your adolescence um, actually writes really cool books. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. Oh, yeah. That's uh, so touching. Um, 
Jasper, did you have a question? Yeah, I did. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I want to follow up that question uh, about Borges with um, something equally um, highbrow. And I just wanted to know if um, the game Avant Gardner was inspired by the virtual yard work, virtual reality yard work joke in The Simpsons. No, I didn't know the virtual uh, yard joke in The Simpsons, but oh. it was. Go ahead, tell it, Jasper. What is the? What is oh, the it's joke? just like it's like a like they're she's just trying. Marge is trying to get um, the kids the yard work simulator. Yeah, it's it's like they're trying to get the kids to do something outside and they won't do it. And they go to some convention and there's a virtual reality headsets and Bart and Lisa are like yard work simulator. And they go and they put on the virtual <laughs> headsets and they're like, it's different. Gotcha. Um, no, the avant-garde, there's a song I think by, uh, I think her name is Courtney Barrett. Um, and there's a restaurant on the, on the Lower East Side, both called avant-garde. So I don't think I was the originator of that joke or I think that joke has been made for a while, but, um, but I like the idea of a, uh, a virtual reality game where they just gardened. And I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good name. Oh, you know what it was based on? Because I was teaching, I was teaching, a, 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 I don't teach much, but I was teaching a writing class. And a, a student said at that time, have you seen this video game, Everything? Uh, and Everything is a, it, it's the trailer for Everything, the video game won an Academy Award. And it's basically, uh, you get to be, um, you get to be a lot of different figures, uh, animals, and then you can get down to the microscopic level and be like paramecium or whatever. And you can go up to the cosmic level and be like a galaxy or whatever. And your job is to go and uh, find other species. I don't know what the, what your job is. I've never played the game, but um, go, but uh, Alan Watts, like monologues are scattered throughout either the game or the trailer, but what? go ahead, Google uh, everything trailer and then watch it after this. It's pretty, it's pretty beautiful actually. Uh, Thank you, Jane. Sure. Um, any other questions? I have a question. Hi, Eugene, great to see you again. Good to see you. Um, yeah, I'm really curious. Uh, with with your with your most with I guess generally with your books, but also um, particularly with your most recent book, what kinds of reading experiences um, do you? I want to say like, do you want your readers to have? But um, I'm not quite sure how to put this. Um, what would you want your readers to take away from reading your works as as a writer? I think each book's a little different. Like the the marketing of Dear Cyborgs, I thought was a little, um, I mean, I, I was glad to have a publisher at all, but that they marketed it as a kind of science fiction book. And I've come to, I've, I've come to be fine with that, um, that uh, uh, label, but I don't really think of myself as science fiction novelist exactly. And <clears throat> it was a quasi, it had superheroes, but I think, um, I think I thought people would pick up that book, look for either a superhero romp or some kind of science fiction story, and they'd be confronted with this experimental fiction story and be um, thrown. And but I was hoping, but I hoped that despite that, they'd go through it and they would, they would first initially respond, "What the fuck did I just read?" Which happens to be a lot of the critical response. And then, but then it evolves into something like, 
it really stuck with me and there were <clears> interesting <throat> parts and you know, that wasn't so bad. Um, and that was maybe even different from the more familiar things I read and that kind of defamiliarization was actually welcome. So some generalized notion of that, I think I would like uh, for all the books. Um, for this book, we haven't even spoken of it, but it was for me a much more, well, in some ways we touch on this, a much more personal novel. And I did want or hoped for the emotion of grief to be somehow represented and somehow um, for a reader to, uh, to feel it, um, to have it captured, expressed, articulated so that they felt it. Um, uh, so that was important to me too. Yeah, that part I think you very much succeeded in, you know, in terms of grief. I mean, um, even the pacing, you know, where you start to learn this person is gone. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's another work. Um, other questions? We're going on an hour and 10 minutes now. Um, Eugene, I have one more question. Who, like what, who, who do you think, uh, what are you reading that's uh, inspiring to you these days? Um, good question. Oh, uh, Tammy shouted it out in, the, uh, in, in a recent piece, but Lisa Chen's new novel, Lisa Xiao Chen's book is gonna come out in April and it's called um, Activities of Daily Living. I think that's uh, a great, it's a great book and you should check it out. Um, it's also about kind of grief about uh, uh, a woman's dealing with her father's decline, as well as um, we, Lisa and I are friends, partly because we both um, greatly admire and love love the the uh, performance artist Searching um, <laughs> She, and uh, who is mentioned in my last novel, but uh, but that uh, uh, but. Lisa's book called Activities of Daily Living um, also thinks about his durational art projects, I think, and it's fantastic. Um, I actually re recently read the uh, Fleur Jaggi book, uh, and I like her quite a bit. And I, um, in terms of Asian American literature, if we want to talk about it, there's been an explosion of, of different books, and I have honestly not kept up, but um, uh, a weird, I'll, I'll name the experimental Asian American fiction novels that I know and like. Uh, Gina Apostol, definitely Insurrecto, though that's, it's, it's, um, it's super complex dealing. I actually, of her novels, might prefer The, Gun Runner, uh, the Gunrunner's Daughter. I think that's what it's called. Um, Tan Lin, who's pretty far out there poet, has a book called um, Ant and then it has the words ant and insomnia in it. It's very short and it takes the, um, it takes the bones of the Asian American assimilation tale or novel and, it, and it, it's written in this bizarre language where you, you realize through the course of the book that you have read a kind of typical in content Asian American assimilation uh, uh, fighting kind of story, but it's written in a bizarre 
murky, slippery, dreamlike language um, that is at first frustrating and, and then uh, I think lovely. Um, I published through my press a woman whose book I don't have right in front of me called, uh, her name is Karen Anway Lee. And she had a book, she has, um, I'm gonna do another book of hers, but her last book was called The Maze of Transparencies. And it's a book about, um, it's also a book about the data deluge and, um, uh, and uh, kind of, it, it takes place in a post-apocalyptic world, but it's largely about information and uh, our, uh, and uh, how we are, how we're handling it. Um, this, okay, anyways, that's probably enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm really, I don't know. It's so, you're right, it's so much richer than when we were like 20, in our 20s, in terms of stuff that you can find from Asian writers, right? It's just recently in the past few years. Yeah, I'd go to like Labyrinth Books in near Columbia and I'd be like, well, there's Daikinu Chang Rayli or, or Don Yi. You know, that's about it. <laughs> when, if you would talk to Asian American writers, which I remember the, the joke was, that, you know, the, the Asian American Writers Workshop has a library, right. with, you know, a collection of books. And initially there was a shelf. <laughs> That was the library, and now right. you go. The, now that you know, it's the, there's shelves uh, all around the space. But um, so there, there definitely it has, it's changed a lot. But it's changed very, very recently. I don't know. It's hard maybe for for younger folk to realize how dra- maybe it's not, but how drastically it changed in just a few years. And it's whole, crazy. It yeah. is. I'm a I'm a librarian, so I read a lot of book reviews, and I, you know, and uh, if you just Google best YA novels 2021, and look at those covers, which they because it's identity driven stuff, there's always a person of color on those covers. That's that's intensely intensely different than a few years ago when it was it there was none of that, absolutely none of that, and it's that's a huge huge transformation yeah it's and it, it's still kind of i remember like when paul yoon's book came out you know and that, that was like the beginning i think of this giant deluge and i was like oh an asian author and then it felt like three months later i was like how many asian authors are there <laughs> yeah. i was like i can't keep up but i mean obviously it's all very positive um people you know doing experimental things and trying to break out of different things i don't know i think it's great um Okay, well, thanks, Eugene, for coming. Um, You're very welcome. If you haven't, if any of you haven't bought the book yet, please buy the book. And um, I don't know, I just wanted to say not to compliment you so much, you know, but it was very emotionally moving for me to read the book. I found myself uh, unusually moved, you know, um, and so, and I think that's like a, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, it's a rare feat to move me, you know. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate very that. Move very often. I'm very, uh, it's very moving. Um, and worked. I actually think the structure, you know, enhanced all of that in a way that, um, you know, sometimes with bad experimental fiction, I feel annoyed by. You know, I'm just like, just put the shit in order. You know, but it, it didn't. It, you're, I think you you mastered this, and it was it was a great book. So bad um, experimental fiction, unfortunately is common and gives experimental fiction a bad name. But, yeah. you know, it's not all difficult to read, overly clever, you know, stinky metafiction. It's like very moving, uh, wrestling with form. You know? Right, right. 
I agree. Um, okay. Well, thank you everyone for coming. And uh, Eugene, I've, uh, well, we might put this up as an episode. You know, I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. Is that okay with you? You can sure. say no, you know, but everyone who listens to the podcast is here. <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. <laughs> but, you know, all the people who listen to all the episodes are here. So <laughs> I don't know what I said or if I was, if I was, confused. you said nothing offensive. I think the only person well, who, who, who will seem stupid <laughs> is me, you know, but that's, you know, that's just the podcast. You know, if people that were, right. were, are mad about that, then they shouldn't listen. Um, okay. Well, um, I, thanks a lot. And um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. And um, you can tell me off air, you know, if you want it up or not, that's fine. Just email me or whatever. But um, if you're okay with it, then we'd love to do it. Okay. I'm, thanks everyone okay. for coming. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.